Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it is a joy to open up God's Word with you this morning, and uh, we're continuing along the, in this series. Whoa, just got a dollar. There we go. I'm putting that in my pocket. Sorry, that was a, a, a distracted moment there, but it was a dollar. We are continuing along in our series, Get Back to Work, in the book of Second Thessalonians. I remember one morning I woke up and uh, was just going into our banking app to see how everything was lining up. You know how bills are coming and you're looking at your monies to say, do I got enough position to take care of this, this, and this that's coming up? And uh, as I was looking through the app, I started to grow a little bit concerned. All of a sudden I noticed that there was $200 at some convenience store in Dubuque, Iowa, and then uh, some $300 that had been spent in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then more and more money as I was looking down. And I said to myself, either Katie went on the best ride of her life while I was sleeping, or we have been just become the victims of identity theft. Well, I think as I tell this story, you can kind of relate to it. Um, identity theft is pretty common. I did a little bit of research. The number of total identity victims in the U.S. had something around the neighborhood of 15.4 million people in 2016. And in that same year, $16 billion had been stolen through credit card theft, email theft, any of the forms of identity theft that you can think of. So in the case of ourselves, as we realized that someone had taken money from our accounts, uh, we called up the bank, and uh, the bank does a pretty good job. They go into exploratory mode and investigate if uh, that money has been taken from you, and they mitigate uh, the damage that comes. They, they give you the money back. We didn't get all the money back. Uh, turns out Katie actually did go to Albuquerque while I was sleeping, uh, but otherwise, we did pretty well. Now... There are pretty, plenty of examples in our culture where someone is willing to take someone's good name and ruin it for personal gain. Uh, have you ever had someone hack your email? You, you get a, an email from one of your friends and it says something along the lines of, I think somebody's hacked your email, you should... Uh, change your password, and then you look at the email the, that supposedly came from your email below, and there's a link, you click on it, and it takes you somewhere that's trying to sell you something, generally something that's pretty awkward, actually. Akimo forwarded an email that supposedly came from me last week. Uh, the email address was reverend at twc.com. And uh, it was a little confused. It said, how are you, uh, or hi, are you occupied uh, at this time? If not, can you help me run a task ASAP? Let me know if you can. I will await your response. Have a great week. Blessings. Father Rob, senior pastor. And uh, I got to tell you, in all fairness, I have to commend this imposter because they're covering all their bases. You got reverend, you got father, you got pastor. It's all there. Surely they're going to get someone with this, right? Well, this is not a new reality, is it? Uh, identity theft. It's not just something that is new to us. Indeed, it's something that has been around for as long as people have been making money and other people have said, hey, there's a way to take that money from those people. Um, in Paul's own day, 
uh, he was the victim of identity theft in 2 Thessalonians. Someone had written a letter, it says in verse 2 of our text this morning, posing themselves as Paul. And the purpose of writing this letter was they wanted to hijack his theology. They wanted to um, uh, put forward their own understanding of theology. Now, this can have a big impact. Identity theft can have a big impact. I mean, think about the impact that someone has when someone steals their credit. It can ruin their credit. It can clean out their bank account. It's a big deal. The same thing is true as we look at this letter this morning. You see, this identity theft, this false teaching, caused a hope problem in the church. And we're going to see that as we look at the text. So let's start with the first two verses, and uh, we'll make our way forward. Paul says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now I want you to notice in those first two verses that Paul is addressing, he's solving a practical emotional problem. I think sometimes we read uh, some of these texts where we get into deeper theology and we think that Paul's just off pontificating. But no, he's using theology to solve practical issues that the church is dealing with. Uh, The Thessalonians, it says, were shaken and alarmed. They'd heard something, they've read something, and it sent them in a stir or a panic. The term shaken means to be moved from your understanding. In verse 5, Paul says something. It's a gentle rebuke. He says, do you not remember what I had told you when I was with you? So the idea here is that this Thessalonian church has become impressionable. Someone comes along, they say something different, and they're just quickly moved off of their previous understanding. Another word that could describe them is the word gullible. Gullible. I think of that quote from uh, Charlotte's Web when Charlotte said to Wilbur, trust me, Wilbur, people are very gullible. They'll believe anything that they see in print. And I got to tell you, you go on Facebook (laughs) for a couple of minutes and you realize that there's a lot of truth to that statement. Think about how many times we allow falsehood, false impressions of matters, uh, things that we, we hear and we quickly receive as truth to steal our joy or rob us of our peace. I think you could imagine it through the lens of this hypothetical situation. Think of this. Say it's Friday at 4.30. Your boss comes into your office and says, hey, I'd like to have a conversation with you. Monday at 8 a.m., first thing in the morning. Now, you hear this. They don't tell you exactly what they would like to talk to you about, and your mind just starts going places uh, every which way, right? So you go to one of your coworkers and you say, 
hey, um, I've got a meeting scheduled with the boss at 8 on Monday. Tell me, have you heard anything? And then this coworker goes off and says, yeah, you know what? I just recently heard a rumor around the water cooler that they're going to be letting go five people very soon. Where does your mind go? All of a sudden, your weekend is destroyed. You go home, you got a frown on your face, the dog comes by you, you want to kick the dog, but you choose not to because that's not okay. You start arguing with your wife, you get grumpy with your kids. Your entire weekend is consumed with thoughts about what am I going to do? Am I going to have to sell my house? How am I going to put my kids through college? What am I going to do? I better start typing up my resume. Suddenly, or Monday rolls around and you come back and you go into your boss's office expecting the worst, only she has a huge smile on her face and says, congratulations, you've been uh, selected as employee of the year, right? Oops, oops. You spent an entire weekend anxious, joyless, and miserable, all because you weren't even in the ballpark, right, of what you thought was the truth. That's what theological error does to the heart of the Christian. In the Thessalonians' case, their fear centered around a misunderstanding of the day of the Lord. They'd been told he's come back, and they swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. So the problem is in eschatological problem. It's an end times problem. Paul is confronting a distortion of end times events, and he has to do this regularly, you actually see in the epistles. In uh, 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, Paul names two men who were spreading deceptive theology, and he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. That's what happens with false doctrine. It causes problems. I would submit to you that all end time problems, when we start just believing every which thing that comes our way about end times, leads us to hope problems. Like I said, theology is eminently practical. It deals with real issues that we face. Uh, Paul had taught this church about the end times, and in the first letter, he had used that to actually deal with, again, a, a practical issue. They were believers in the church who were dying. And they had grown concerned. What if Jesus comes back and and those people aren't resurrected from the dead? And Paul says, what? He says, don't grieve like those who have no hope. You see, your, your theology is supposed to translate into something real in your life. If you're going through grief, right? Grief. Something all of us will face in one way or another in this life. The fact that Jesus is coming back should have something to say about that. So he tells them, don't grieve as other people. And he also says, hope. And he supplies them with sound doctrine. And he does this in verses 3 through 12. And that's because good theology is always the remedy for hope problems. 
Maybe that's something you need to hear this morning. Maybe there's a a hope deficit in your heart right now. That can happen for a lot of different reasons. It can happen because of personal reasons. There's certain events in your life that seem like they're spiraling out of control and, and you look at them in a series and you just say to yourself, am I ever going to come out of this? can also happen because we get all caught up in the news cycle. I've got to tell you, friends, um, more often than not, I talk to Christians who follow the news a little too closely, if you get my drift, a little too closely, and they're like, I'm terrified. You know, look at what's happening in the world. This is all bad. This is all bad. Friends, that's a hope problem. That's a hope problem. Well, I believe it's important to stay informed We must not watch the news like those who have no hope. So the remedy for any of your hope deficiencies is a good dose of end times prophecy. That's the purpose of prophecy. And I think that as we listen to this, our hope tanks will be filled up. Now, let's just remind ourselves about what the purpose of prophecy is not first. I think it's important to start there because prophecy often gets misapplied or misappropriated or misused. The first thing that it is not is prophecy is not meant to incite fear. You're not supposed to watch the Left Behind movies and be terrified, right? Uh, You're supposed to hear biblical prophecy and be filled with something much different than fear. Prophecy is not um, meant to divide Christians over such matters as chronologies. I, I know of Christians who will not even sit in the same room because this person believes the rapture is happening here and this person believes the rapture is happening there. That's a problem. Prophecy is not meant to satisfy our every eschatological whim. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we're not going to be given specific dates or names. I'm not going to be naming someone this morning who I say, that is the Antichrist. I know it because I read these, uh, this name in the book of such and such, and I did all the counting, and surely it's them. That's a problem. It's not specific like that. And it's caused many to fall into error. And that's because I think that as people interpret prophecy that way, they're missing a big point about interpretation, which is this, that prophecy is clearly event-driven, not specific details-driven. So you're not getting names, you're not getting dates, you're getting events such as the tribulation, such as the millennial return of Christ, such as the eternal state, events. It was in 1960 that uh, Bernard of Thuringia, a German theologian, calculated that 992 was going to be the year that the world ended. Inevitably, as this time approached, it sent all of that community into widespread panic. And then when that event had come and passed, then around uh, the end of the century, Abba of Fleury tells of a preacher in Paris who declared that the Antichrist was going to come in the thousandth year, and then subsequent to that, shortly after that, then the judgment would come. And of course, people again, doomsdayers are preaching that the end is coming. People are bringing ox cart loads of jewels and precious things to the church, which, you know, I, I could see why that would be fortuitous for the church at that time. But again, what happens? 
Well, the time comes and passes. We're now in 2018. The Antichrist hasn't come. The end hasn't come. And I think the error that any of these uh, individuals fell into is, again, they got what? Specific detail-driven, right? But the Bible talks about it in terms of events. When you see this event happen, then you will know. Clearly, that's not the type of response Paul expected for preaching on prophecy. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, I think he gives us what he expected. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. That's the purpose. Not date setting, not hysteria building, not personal gain, but encouraging one another. Strengthening our resolve, solidifying our hope. That's the purpose of prophecy. Now let's talk about systems for a moment. I think it's important when we talk about prophecy that we would put our cards on the table and say, this is a system that I follow. A system is something like a, a grid that we place over the lens of the Bible and we say, I kind of understand the interconnectedness of the Bible in this way. Now some people might say, well, I don't really like the idea of systems. I just study the Bible. I got to tell you, Everybody has a system. And the problem is when you say, I'm not willing to submit myself to a system or, or value a system, you get into the Bible, you start reading it, and you either, one, adopt a system that already exists, or two, you make up your own system. And as one of my seminary professors said, he said, students, if you ever go into the Bible and you find something that is completely new to you and to everybody else, you are probably inventing a heresy. And so... Uh, Let's avoid that if we can. So here's my cards on the table. Uh, when I approach end times prophecy, I hold to a system called dispensational premillennialism. Um, dispensational premillennialism. So here's a basic explanation. I know you guys are wild with those terminologies and everything, but uh, let's give you a basic explanation of it. Dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which means economy or stewardship. This is from Paul Benware. He says, this compound word is based on two Greek words, oikos, which means house, and nemo, which means to manage. The basic concept of a dispensation is that of a stewardship, where one with authority delegates duties to a subordinate who must carry out the stated responsibilities and is held accountable for what he does. So up there you have a chart with um, a dispensational understanding of how God has operated in history. And there are seven dispensations. Uh, one of the things I want you to notice about these transitions in God's dealings with humanity is that it is not about salvation. God hasn't changed the way that people are saved. People have always been saved, what, by grace through faith, because of the finished, complete work of Jesus' death on the cross. But what we're talking about here is a, a progressive revelation, a, a, a transition in God's way of dealing with humanity. And I think as you read the Bible, you can see that taking shape through the story of the Bible. Let's talk about a couple of the distinctives of dispensational theology. I think one is this, it's a consistent literal approach to the scripture. 
When I use that word literal, I don't mean hyper-literal, which, you know, you go into poetry and you're reading figurative language and saying, oh, that surely means that, right? No, 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 no. We understand genre. We, we take a normative understanding of the genre. Two, we see a clear distinction between the church and the nation of Israel in God's dealings. Both are saved through Jesus, right? That's what we've always said. But there is a sense that there is a national Israel plan that we see in the Bible and that God intends to keep the promises that he delivered to Abraham, to this nation. He will operate through those promises. Thirdly, we hold to the glory of God and we say that the glory of God is God's ultimate purpose in history. God's glory, though, is always for our good. When God is most glorified, you are most satisfied. So as a dispensationalist, I have a certain understanding of the events of the end times. And let me show you another chart there. Um, This chart is just giving you an explanation of a, a prophetic timeline. So right now, where we live in human history is called the church age. Um, And then you'll notice that there's a a rapture event that I would say precedes the tribulation, maybe even kicks the tribulation off. The tribulation is that seven-year period of God's wrath, and that's where you'll hear about figures such as the Antichrist, the Mark of the Beast, those types of things. At the end of the tribulation period, then, is the second coming of Christ, then a a thousand-year millennial kingdom, Uh, a second uh, resurrection, and then the eternal state. So I'm going through this quickly, okay? Very quickly. Because uh, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're not in all of the prophetic timeline, and each one of those things needs its own sermon. It's important to note in 2 Thessalonians 2 that Paul is specifically addressing the tribulation, period. That's that seven-year period that you saw in that timeline. Now, some people have said something along the lines of, but Paul doesn't mention a pre-tribulation rapture here. It must not exist. But I've got to tell you, again, he said very clearly in verse 5 that I'm restating some things that I've already said to you in person. So the way that I understand this text is he's specifically talking about this tribulation that they think they're in, and he's clarifying. He's saying, you're not seeing these types of things. Clearly, you're not living through the tribulation. So let's read that passage, verses 3 through 10, as we make our way through. The apostle says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. 
And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So in this series of verses, Paul is describing three major events. The first is the rebellion in verse 3a. Now if he said these things to them in person and he taught on this extensively, and he just gives us a little excerpt of a previous teaching, it would make sense that our understanding of some of the things that he is saying in this text would be limited. We weren't there. We didn't get that full teaching. We get his recap in verse 3. And so he talks about this rebellion, and as best as I can understand it, it appears that Paul is speaking futuristically of a specific period in human history that will be marked by massive rebellion against God, perhaps even gaining worldwide attention. Now, this tribulation period, which is what I'm talking about, that seven-year period, will be a time where God's wrath is poured out upon the, the earth over seven years. And one of the response, or reasons for that is a response to human evil. It will be an unparalleled time in human history. A time of trouble. It will be worldwide in scale. The idea here is that no person is left untouched and it will be marked by pure rebellion against God. You can see why this church would be fearful if someone had said, this is where you're at right now in human history. In fact, I would submit to you that they're probably thinking to themselves, have we missed the, the rapture? But Paul, again, he comes back and he says, no, you're not seeing these things. This is not what's happening. The second um, event that he describes is the revealing of the Antichrist. If you look there at verse 3, he describes a man called the man of lawlessness. Uh, if you look at other parts of the Bible, we get more description of who this man is. In 1 John 2.18, the Apostle John calls him the Antichrist. We've heard that name before. His character and his destiny are wrapped up in the names that he's given in the text. As the man of lawlessness, he is lawless in the sense that he opposes everything moral. Everything that is God-given. The laws of God, he is antithetical to it all. He's, he's striking an adversarial position. He probably most embodies that attitude that Paul describes in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, where he talks about the unrighteous people who do unrighteous things, but not only do they do those things, but they what? Approve of others who do the same. He's also called the son of destruction. He will have a great disregard for the basic dignity of human beings. Ending human life, marginalizing people, dehumanizing people will be nothing for this antichrist. In 1 John 2.18, 
The apostle notes that there is the Antichrist, but he also states something along the lines of many Antichrists have come. Uh, Later, in 1 John 4, he talks about a, a spirit of the Antichrist. And I think the idea here is that there will be instances in human history of men rising up to political power. So even before the coming of Jesus, there was a figure named Antiochus Epiphanes, and and then we see the Roman Empire, and later on and on down the line, there will be men who rise up like this with power. Men, uh, I would submit to you, like Hitler and, and Mussolini and Stalin, who possess great power and do the works like the Antichrist did. However, they are just a prefigure of this guy. He is going to make Hitler look like a tamed kitten. What else do we learn about him? Well, the word anti has two meanings, against and instead of. So the Antichrist is Satan's puppet ruler whose sole purpose is one, to oppose Christ, and two, to receive worship instead of Christ. That's his goal. It says to us in um, verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. In other parts of the Bible, the prophet Daniel, Jesus, and Matthew 24, 15 refer to that event as the abomination of desolation. But why would people worship another person? Why would people look at this figure and say, oh, he's God, I'm going to worship. I mean, I, I, could, I can envision living in Paul's day. You have the emperor cult. People are worshiping these emperors who have set up statues of themselves. They've deified them. I get that for back then, but not today. Would we worship another human being? Well, Paul explains in verse 8 that the reason people will be deceived and worship the Antichrist is because Satan will work with power and false signs and wonders. You even get a hint in Revelation 13.3 that indicates that the Antichrist will stage a false death and resurrect to deceive people. In 2 Thessalonians 10, Paul explains that his deception will cause many to perish. But they're not innocent bystanders, Paul says. They're not just caught up in the whims of this rebellion. The rebellion uh, flows out of their own hearts. He says they too refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now, how will this evil break out in the world? And I think we get a hint of this in... Um, 2 Thessalonians verses 6 and 7. Look there with me. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. The phrase that Paul employs here, this idea of restraining Um, what is holding Satan back and the Antichrist back that's going to set off this tribulation has the idea of a dog being contained by a leather leash, right? 
Um, so the dog is only permitted to go as far as the leash and the chain will allow the dog to go. It stays within the orbit. It can strain, it can snarl, it can snap at every opportunity, but as long as the leash is in the owner's hand, that dog is what? Going nowhere. Its movements are limited, it's confined, it's restrained. The dog knows it, and the dog doesn't like it. The Antichrist is on this type of leash at the moment. He's staying put until God says so. There's much debate as to who or what is restraining the Antichrist. Um, It's interesting when you actually look at the grammar of verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, Paul mentions the restraining in terms of a force, a what. But then in verse 7, he, he mentions it in terms of a who, a someone. Uh, so on one hand, he speaks of the restrainer as a force. On the other, it's a person. I think the implication is that the restrainer is someone who has the ability to exercise supernatural force. You see what I'm saying there? So I think the idea in the text is this, that the Holy Spirit fits that description. The Spirit of God is holding that at bay until I think what Paul says in Romans, the gathering of the Gentiles is complete. Uh, Mark Howard rightly states this, though. He says, since the Holy Spirit is God, his removal from the scene does not indicate his complete absence. Rather, It points to a deliberate lessening of his suppression of evil. So if you can imagine it like this, if God were to remove the power of the Holy Spirit in this world right now, it would unleash or it would be like the breaking of a dam for human evil upon this world. And that's what happens in the tribulation period. So, we're looking at these events. We're saying to ourselves, well, that doesn't sound very hopeful, right? Right? But you have to remember that you have to know what's coming, right? And that builds hope in the heart because we we get a better understanding of the world. Now let's ask the the big question. If that doesn't sound hopeful, then why does end times prophecy solidify the hope of the Christian? Why is it hope building? Well, there's one more event that Paul mentions that put all of these other events into perspective. I mean, if you simply consider the tribulation— uh, the, the rebellion, the, the Antichrist. Well, that's a gloomy picture of the world, and it actually paints a picture of the world like we see all the time in the media that we consume. Have you ever noticed how most of the movies that kind of play out what human history is going to look like nowadays are dystopian? It's a very negative view of the world. It, it, there isn't much prospect of hope contained within that. Well, the Christian worldview does say that the end will bring about bad times. The Christian worldview also always resolves itself on hope. And what is our hope? It's this. God sovereignly controls human history. He's in charge Uh, You see, the the message of the future 
is that nothing is coming that God doesn't already know about and nothing is coming that God already doesn't intend to deal with. So our confidence, our stability, our hope rests on God. If God is all-powerful, if God is able, if he's in control, then we have nothing to fear. I think about the prophet Daniel as he received some visions of how history would consummate. Now, you have to put yourself in his shoes. If you don't know about his story, Daniel was in exile in Babylon from Jerusalem. He was taken from his own land probably at the age of a teenager, and he was subjugated under that Babylonian rule his entire life. You could put yourself in his shoes, and you could see yourself feeling very helpless, couldn't you? All of my life is under somebody else's control, somebody else telling me what to do. I'm looking out at the world, and I'm only ever seeing one conqueror take over another conqueror. Where's the hope in that? But God gives him a vision in Daniel chapter 7. And in that vision, Daniel the prophet sees a vision of four beasts that represent four different human empires that were both powerful and destructive. He sees a mutant lion which represents uh, Babylon in, under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And then he sees a, a mutant bear which would represent the Medo-Persian uh, Empire that would take over Babylon. And then he sees... A mutant cheetah, which represents the great expansion of Greece through Alexander the Great. And then the prophetic eye moves forward in history and time and sees a final beast. Daniel 7, 7 through 8. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came out among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up on the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things." Many Bible prophecy interpreters would see that little horn as the Antichrist. Now this is the pinnacle of human rule here. It's ultimate power under the ultimate dictator who leverages power in such a way that has never been seen before in human history. But then Daniel sees something else. Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So while all of this chaos, while human history is unfolding and unfurling, God sits enthroned above it all. And in verse 11 it says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. He's blaspheming God. He hates God. And as I looked, the beast was killed 
and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Verses 13 and 14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Hmm. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him and, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, that's how human history resolves. Jesus returns he, he physically establishes his rule upon the earth. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, the Lord Jesus will kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. How do you like that? It's a no contest. The braggadocious, vindictive, godless, blaspheming, Antichrist gets put down with mere words. The God who spoke the universe into existence puts human history, human striving, human rebellion to rest with his mere words. I imagine that all Jesus says is enough. And like a house of cards, the armies gathered at Armageddon fall. Now as we close this out, I want you to ask yourself two questions, church. Two big questions. Remember, the, the purpose of prophecy is not to tickle your fancy about the future. We can kind of get lost in that, wrapped up in that, and miss the heartbeat of prophecy. So I have two big questions for you. The first is this, how's your mind? How is your mind? Remember in verse 2, Paul said that the Thessalonians were shaken, meaning that they were easily impressionable. They didn't have a firm grasp of God's word and of sound theology. So I have to ask you the question, how well do you understand the deeper Christian truths? How well? How much of your energy are you willing to put into that discovery? One of the big concerns I have for many Christians is that they treat theological learning with a little bit of contempt. They say things like, ah, I don't need to study that. that that's for some white ivory tower type. I just need things that are practical for my life today. Friends, theology is eminently practical. When you have a high view of God, when you understand who he is and his greatness and power, let me tell you, it makes a big difference down here on the ground of the earth. So we got to know it. The mind feeds the furnace of the heart. I learn to love. The more deeply I know God's truth, the more I will be convinced it is true the more I will want to do the truth because I will love the truth. So if you're wanting more knowledge on this particular subject, here's a book for you. There's other books out there, but this is one I was dealing with recently. It was called Understanding End Times Prophecies by Paul Benware. One of the things I like that he does is he lays up a, a couple of different options on the table so you can understand 
what the different systems look like and mean and uh, why I take the system I take. The second question I have for you this morning is, how is your hope? I want you to think about what you are worried about right now. I want you to think about the issue that might be heavy on your heart that keeps the eyeballs awake at 2 a.m. in the morning. Now think about the truth that we examined. Most importantly, think about the fact that Jesus will quash the world's greatest rebellion with his mere words. Friends, how big is your concern? Comparatively. But at the same time, don't deceive yourself to believe that God doesn't care about your concern. He does. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. That's the genuine article, friends. That's hope. Jesus is in charge, and he cares about you. He will see you through to the end. So the real question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? And if you do, then live in light of it. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? God, as we consider your holy word this morning, I am so grateful and thankful for it. Lord, uh, most of all, I am grateful and thankful for the reminder that you are sovereignly in control of human history. I, I don't know about anyone else in this room, but when I look at human history, apart from the lens of knowing that God's in control, I feel discouraged. But Lord, when I know that you are in control, it changes everything. And so, I pray, Lord, for the hope meters in this room, for the one who is struggling and concerned and doesn't know if they should hold on to their Christian faith. Lord, I pray this morning that you will fill them, that you will raise them up. Lord, that they would have a stronger resolve to stay with you to the end. Lord, encourage. Do the work that only you can do by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.